Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron and Casper. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. You heard him there at the beginning. Hi. Hey. We're, we're back. Good to be here. We're back. We are back. Back in space. Woo. We're back. We're going to go see some ice giants. Yeah, we're going to the outer solar system today. But before we do that, I need to do a little bit of pre-flight checklist with you, because Uh-oh. you went and saw... The killjoy of science, uh, and I say that I would love. He doesn't kill science; he kills joy with science. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson, popular science podcaster. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, your own personal astrophysicist. That's what he says, right? That's how he introduces sure. himself. Uh, yeah. So he is currently on uh, on a tour, uh, going around the U.S. and talking about movies. So. He has been uh, known to get into trouble over the years for tweeting about movies and how they get science right or wrong. Some people don't take that very well. And he's kind of condensed all that into like, I say condensed, it was like a two and a half hour event. Uh, apparently he went long, like longer than he was supposed to even like with the theater we were in. Uh, which is kind of funny. They were like very much uh, rushing us, um, rushing us out of there when it was done. Uh, but he, hmm. you know, he talks a little bit about his work and then, uh, looks at a bunch of movies. So he had him, his comments divided into categories, things like aliens, uh, you know, geometry, uh, stars, you know, all, all sorts of different angles into science and how movies get that right. And, you know, a lot of movies get a lot of stuff right. And um, some movies will do really well and then get like one thing wrong and he calls them on that. And then some movies are just complete gibberish. Um and it was a it was a lot of fun. I was in a huge theater, like it was in uh, it was in the Orpheum here, which is like off Broadway shows come to, like a real like theater theater. And it was just crammed full of people, and he just had the whole audience, myself included, just like right where he wanted us. It was so funny, and uh, so he'd show a clip, and I talk about what happened in the clip, and then you know have an example or, or correct them, or it was just, it was a lot of fun, like you said. It's a little bit of a killjoy, right? Like you see a movie that you really liked and he, he kind of picks it apart, picks the science apart at least. But uh, it was it was all done in jest and, and fun. And I think that made it it made it a, a real blast. That's good. I mean, I think I think people like I said, he's he's kind of a killjoy. What he's trying to do is educate and, and have it be entertaining. And I think that's part of his personality is is this, you know, pointing out scientific uh, scientific falsehoods in movies and whatever else uh, and current events. And uh, it's, it's, it's good. Every now and then it comes across as like, geez, you know, geez guy, uh, not everything needs to be well actually, but that is kind of his job. So if you don't want to hear him do that, you should not listen, but, but he's very entertaining. Yeah. And he knows his stuff and he's the one who demoted Pluto. That's uh, that's true. That did not uh, that did not come up. I kind of thought that it might, um, but uh, he didn't bring it up. Maybe maybe he was afraid of riots or something. Uh, and he, he ended on what's probably one of the the more well known examples. So you know, in Titanic, towards the end of it, she's floating in the water. Spoiler: the, the boat sinks. Just spoiler horn. Yeah, that. it's surprise ending ruins <laughs> otherwise enjoyable boat movie. That's fa- <laughs> my favorite review of it. <laughs> and uh, there's a scene where, you know, the main character is floating in the ocean and looking up at the sky, and very famously, 
they used the wrong sky. Because we know, as he points out, we know exactly where the boat went down. We know exactly the date and the time. And if you know all that, you can calculate what stars would be visible. And just somewhere in post-production, Joe Steele put the wrong sky in, I guess. Yep. And uh, probably a young, young, <laughs> like probably like elementary school student, Joe Steele or yeah. something did that. Yeah. Can yeah. Be, it's, uh, it, it, that's like, um, uh, Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, astronomer does a lot of that same stuff. And the one that I always liked was there's a beer commercial where they, I probably talked about it here before, where they like, they watch the sun go down and then they take all their beer to the other side of this little island that they're on. And then they watch the full moon come up and it's like. Phil Plate, I remember, was like, oh, look, they got the astronomy right. <laughs> it's like, that's that's because it's usually like the sun goes down and there's a full moon right above it. And it's like, that does, that's not how it, how it works. But, you know, occasionally they do get it right, too. But, yeah, you know, again, does it matter? No. But at the same time, if you were making that, you could have got it right. That movie had a budget a little bit. Right. And, and you know, he said it bothered him because so much of the rest of the movie was accurate. I mean, they went to the bottom right. of the ocean and found the Titanic, right? Like, it, they, all this research went into it. And he said that over the course of, like, 10 years, anytime, you know, he would he would run into James Cameron, you know, at events or something, fundraisers, he would point it out. And apparently Cameron wouldn't have anything to do with it, basically saying, look, the movie made a billion dollars, I'm sure, the sky whatever dude like <laughs> i know it bothers you but clearly it didn't bother people but when then they did a remaster for the i think in 2012 for the the hundredth anniversary of the ship sinking and as degrasse tyson tells it he's sitting in his office and gets a phone call saying uh we've heard that you have a sky we could borrow and so he went and you know gave them the correct the correct information and that made it into sort of the remastered you know recut uh edition of the film and so a lot of stuff like that that was just a fun, you know, it's always funny for me, at least, and uh, I think maybe you're the same way of like getting these stories of behind the scenes of how media gets made and the decisions that go into it and all the not really politics, but sort of the back and forth that happens over stuff. Right. Like, you know, you have this crazy scientist guy that you run into a party every five years and he's always railing about you getting a detail wrong in your, you know, the movie that, you know, just massive success. And uh, but then you get to fix it. So it was it was very enjoyable. And I was really impressed. You know, Memphis, uh, for all of its good and bad, like we're in the South sometimes, you know, I I wasn't expecting it to be sold out, I guess is what I'm getting at. And Hmm. it totally was like all sorts of people. There were a bunch of kids there, you know, all sorts of people. And it was um, it was a very enjoyable way to spend a couple hours uh, just seeing a bunch of movie clips and uh I mean, everything from, you know, Titanic to, like, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, talking about, like, the best time travel scene ever. Talks about time travel and how, something I hadn't really thought about, that time travel, you also have to travel distance. Like, if you go one hour in the future or two hours in the future, the planet isn't under you anymore, like, because it is orbiting the sun. And uh, he's like, you know, no movie I've ever seen deals with that, but it's totally a problem. Like, you don't, you know, Marty McFly doesn't leave the parking lot of the mall and then crash through a barn. He's, you know, falling through space all of a sudden, which I thought was just uh, pretty hilarious. Right. You you had to put in some dialogue about how well the Earth's magnetic field ties us to this location and blah, 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 or, or, or not. Yeah. Or you can not. There's a superhero who I think one of his powers was to basically uncouple himself from the Earth's rotation. And so he could travel very quickly in one direction for a period of time. (laughs) Which is, it's it's a weird power, but it is kind of, I mean, there's some physics about that. Like, you know, the the earth basically just starts moving under you and then you, you know, you, a second or two later, you're, you're very far away. 
So NASA recently made an announcement about a star. Now, it's not in our solar system, uh, but obviously you're not uh, anywhere super close to us. But uh, TRAPPIST-1, the system, is really uh, groundbreaking because it is the first time seven Earth-sized planets have been seen around a single star. The whole family of them. It's kind, a whole bunch of kind them. of an embarrassment of riches um, that that they've got this one uh, system that has all these rocky planets. But I mean, it's great news for people who want to find rocky planets and uh, and Earth like you know Earth analogs. The the star Trappist one is a very cool dwarf star, but uh, so it's not a sun analog at all. But all of these rocky planets is pretty amazing. Yeah, so they they believe that three of the seven are firmly in the habitable zone around the star. And like you said, it's an ultra cool dwarf. So these are much closer to the star than what you know we're used to here on Earth being one AU away. But because it's so much cooler and so much smaller, they can be closer without being you know uh, obliterated away like Mercury has been. Yeah, that's the that's the idea. Is this is in fact it's it's kind of a cool object. Trappist one is itself in that it is they believe barely over the um, the threshold of being of of having enough mass to initiate uh, fusion at its core. Like it's a you know it's not too far away from being essentially a brown dwarf, which is like a super Jupiter. That is, it's big, but it, it it's not. Um, and it may have some heat, but uh, it's not fusing in the core, and that means it's not a star. This is just, like, just big enough. So it's a very, very small star. It also means that it will burn for a very long time, way longer. It'll be one of the longest-lived stars in the universe because the smaller uh, a star is, the kind of cooler it burns and the longer its life is. Even though that's a little counterintuitive, that's how it works. So... Uh, so it's a, a very unlike our sun, but um, they still have a habitable zone. And because of what its radiation, it's also, you know, it's very, it's very dim. A lot of infrared uh, and red light uh, is put out by it. It's not uh, because of that, that temperature difference. Um, so the habitable zone is in a different spot, a pretty dramatically different spot. There was a cool article. I'm trying to find the link to it. To a, It was like a reality check article that somebody sent to our Twitter account. And um, and it was really good. I was expecting some sort of like deeply skeptical about it. But instead, it was just kind of a critical analysis of it and points out that instead of calculating out, you know, astronomical units and things like that, which is, you know, the distance from a star like ours, you, you use this. Uh, essentially, it's like the solar effect on the planet, like how much how much uh, heat does it get? And then what does that mean in terms of its habitability? And and there are multiple planets, rocky planets, that are, would be considered in the habitable zone, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting. Uh, it was uh, spotted, and I think a lot of the studying came from uh, Spitzer, which is an infrared telescope that trails the Earth. It's at a Lagrange point behind us in our orbit. And it was well-suited... Um, because of the infrared light that you said that it that it puts out, and it's so I think in 2016 Spitzer basically observed the system continuously for 500 hours, and you know looking at those little dips in the light to count the plants as they go by, looking at the transits, and through that uh, observation is where kind of this this came together, and it's something to the James Webb Telescope should be. Uh, also well suited to see 
and to study. So hopefully we'll be seeing we'll be seeing more from this system once uh, James Webb is in place. Right, Webb could actually show us uh, composition of the atmospheres if there are atmospheres around these worlds. Um, one of the things that we talked about in our exoplanet episode, and, it, and it's worth restating here, is that there are different ways to find exoplanets. And one of the cool things about TRAPPIST is that, so the TRAPPIST-1 system was discovered by a, uh, a survey called TRAPPIST. That is a very clever name. It is a Belgian-led survey. It uses, uh, I, I believe it's telescopes in South America. And it found three exoplanets, it thought, around this. And it uses it uses a specific imaging method. And then the Spitzer Space Telescope, which uses a different imaging method, uh, has gotten all of these details, including the fact that that, I believe the third planet is actually multiple planets and that they've seen more, I think it was two, and then they've seen other planets in addition. So we end up with this, uh, the seven planet system. And um, so James Webb as an infrared system, infrared telescope will be able to give us different information. So you've got multiple instruments using different techniques to discover details. And as a result, we've got some pretty amazing details about these planets orbiting around another star because we've got their orbit and we've got their mass and their density. And so that lets us, that's why there's some confidence that they're, uh, that a bunch of them are rocky. Um, not necessarily all of them. There's still some possibility that w- at least one of them could be kind of like a small Neptune. Um, but it's probably, you know, it's like chances are probably good that they are, these are all rocky planets and in the in the habitable zone to one degree or another. So it's it's um, or uh, some of them, like three of them. They're, they're like three pretty good candidates for being kind of like potentially habitable with liquid water. Um so this is breaking. I think actually one of the things that might be fun for us to do in a future episode is paint a picture of what all these worlds are and what life is like on them if there were life there or what it would be like to stand on them. Uh, I'm not going to do that today because we've got a lot loaded up for this show, but I think there's so much here that um, we could maybe do an explainer article that's just talking about what all these different worlds are, what we know about them, because we've reached that point. It's so cool that science has brought us to this point that that we know... Um, we know the characteristics of planets orbiting another star, like, you know, somebody else's solar system, and not just like there's one there or there's two there, but like we have this this idea of seven. We can see the orbital resonance, so we know that these orbits are tracking together, very much like the ice giants, which we'll talk about, uh, have have same orbital resonances going on with other bodies in the solar system. So it's very exciting, um, and we should and, and and the opportunity for more learning to come. Right, like James Webb Telescope could tell us like there's there's an atmosphere, or even there are there's signs of organics on some of these planets. Probably won't happen, but could happen, and that's that's incredibly exciting too. Yeah, absolutely, and because uh, it is a uh, NASA sort of project and website there is an amazing poster of course that, uh, that an artist has done and has some people looking out a window and these planets are all so close to each other it's believed that if you were on the surface you'd be able to see multiple other planets in the sky like up close which would be before i think they're all closer to their star than mercury is to yeah, ours they actually the, the, it's, a, it's a tight grouping the, the closest analog is actually the moons of jupiter which are in very close orbits and affect each other's orbits and are in these orbital resonances. Um, and that you would see 
prominently these, and they're all orbiting in like a few days around this star because it's so small and cool. Um, but you would see them in the sky. You would see these planets just kind of like blowing past or going around behind. And I mean, they're all whizzing around. Um, it would be pretty spectacular, actually, as a sky. And then the star itself would be, I think, twice the size of the sun in the sky um, because you're so close to it. Even though it's smaller than the sun, it, you're so close to it and, it, and it's... Uh, and and that's and it's you know it's cooler and it's dimmer. Super fun. Uh, we also have uh, just uh, just yesterday as we record this uh, a SpaceX announcement, and and not one that uh, some people may have expected, but uh, in short, uh, SpaceX has said they have been they say they have been approached by two individuals that didn't name them, and those two individuals have purchased from SpaceX or are purchasing. Uh, the company's first private space travel, space tourism, really. And this mission would use the uh, Crew Dragon capsule. This would take place after Commercial Crew kind of gets underway, which we're going to talk about in a second. But the their plan is to launch from 39A and circle the moon and then come back. Yeah, it's the, the, the old free return. It's actually the anniversary, I think the 50th anniversary of... Um, the first mission to send humans around the moon, which was Apollo, what, eight, was it? Yes. Um, shame on me for not knowing that, but that that's the, and that's the Borman Lovell Anders mission where they didn't get to land on the moon, but they got to go around it, which then, of course, um, how lucky for uh, for for Jim Lovell to get to do that again accidentally in Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. But, uh, in Apollo 8, that was the plan, and it's this free return trajectory. You shoot them out, they go around the moon, they come back to Earth, and then you land. And uh, it looks like that's the plan for this, is is you're not going to land. This isn't like we're not sending people to the moon like to land right. on it, but sending people around the moon, which would be the furthest out that people have been uh, mm-hmm. since Apollo that that by a lot. And uh, so it's it's a really interesting idea that they're talking about private citizens paying like a space tourism kind of thing for this. But it sounds like it is um, there's a lot going on, right? I mean, there's there's piggybacking on commercial crew that they're building this capsule that people can be in. And so this would be a case where this would be an automated system. The people wouldn't really be driving it or anything. They'd just be passengers. But that it would happen after they would test commercial crew with um, with NASA astronauts on a mission which might happen, you know, they say later this year, maybe, but it's going to be next year. Um, so it's possible that they would do this after that. you got to wonder politically if what's really going on here is this is like a uh, uh, Lauren Grush wrote a good uh, um, analysis piece on The Verge about this. you got to wonder if this is SpaceX kind of poking the new administration and saying, look, we can do this stuff and we can do it faster than NASA can. And so maybe, you know, you don't need your big plans for your, you know, your big rocket and all of those things. Maybe you should just pay us to do it, which, you know, I think the current administration might be into that idea of having a a private company um, provide all of that for NASA. Yeah, that... That article came out today. Last night, NASA had a, a comment, and it was pretty brief and, and basically saying, you know, hey, we encourage our partners to you know, move the ball forward, and, and very brief and very short. And it, it there's not, not, not that there's tension in that press release, but I, I sort of left that press release thinking this – like there's a weird dynamic here, right, that uh, NASA is working on the SLS 
Some of those early missions include returning to the moon again, not not landing on the moon, but returning uh, to its orbit, and SpaceX saying, you know, we're going to do it too. And you know, their time frame, like it's Elon Musk, right? So like he says, twenty eighteen, assume twenty twenty. Yeah, and it's Falcon Heavy, uh, which has not even been launched. So <laughs> right, yeah, and and the the Dragon has not been rated for crews yet. There's still like an FAA license issue that they have to work through. I mean, the FAA may say no to this. I mean, we just don't know. There's a lot of things that need to fall into place. But I agree with you that this is, the timing is super interesting in that NASA's plan under the Trump administration isn't completely solidified at this point. So they've really kind of been hands off so far as far as big picture policy. And this could be like, I see this working in a couple of ways. This could be in SpaceX's favor and, you know, say that NASA stays the course with the SLS and the journey to Mars stays kind of intact as it was under the Obama administration. Uh, the, the federal government could have its cake and eat it too and say, you know what, we're going to go to Mars with SLS and they're going to turn over or add stuff to uh, SpaceX contract to return to the moon. And you could kind of see it playing out in this like this dual programs where NASA is pushing to Mars and, and, and SpaceX is taking more on uh, closer to home. But it's all early days, right? Like there's a lot of steps that have to take place for this to happen. Uh, I, I find it incredibly interesting. You know, we've talked about space tourism a lot. There are um, some aspects of that going on now, but it's it's not at all. This is a totally different thing, right? This is a uh, this is when you think of like space tourism and, and and private space travel. Like this is really what we're talking about. And to, so to see it it being brought up and mentioned and you know a date put down now is is exciting but it's just it's a, it's a new chapter right this is a if this takes place this is a distinctly new chapter in crewed spaceflight and it's one that nasa is going to have to figure out where where those lines are right yeah. you know commercial crew is one thing and you know some people initially I remember being uncomfortable with commercial crew saying, saying why use private companies the government should be able to do this and i think commercial crew will in the end be a win for everybody. You can keep servicing the space station. NASA can spend its resources elsewhere, and we don't have to rely on the Russian government to get us to orbit. But this is like beyond that, right? This is saying, you know, we we can go far further than just servicing the station. We can do all sorts of things as private industry and let NASA do whatever NASA is going to do. And I think that is going to be that is going to that is going to force some changes. Uh, I think within NASA, within 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 all space agencies, I mean the European Space Agency, everybody to say, you know, uh, up until this point, private companies were doing only small things. You know, not that going to the station is small, but you know what I mean. Like they're doing things that are easy, uh, easier than going to the moon, and this puts SpaceX potentially on the same footing uh, as NASA and beyond what other space agencies are doing. And that's just uh, that's uncharted territory so far. Yeah, it is. And I think my challenge here as an observer who doesn't know the details of what is probably still also not, you know, known widely outside of the halls of, of SpaceX and, the, the you know, everybody building SLS is what's real here? What's realistic here? Because I think we could probably agree that in the end, I'm not sure we need two heavy launch vehicles, although there is an argument to be made for um, for competition this is weird because there's heavy launch vehicle coming from private company and heavy launch be- vehicle being built by private company 
as a contractor for NASA, <laughs> which is, right. you know, and, and so I, I think one thing that Elon Musk is doing here is trying to say, um, what's the difference between these two things? Like, if you're going to have co- companies building this stuff, why not just make us compete for it? Because I think he feels a little bit like he's on the outside looking in. I think also, again, that's his ambition and his, uh, you know, the reality is that they're, you know, they had an accident. Now they're back to supplying the space station. They still haven't launched Falcon Heavy. They still haven't launched, um, launched crew. So, but, but he's all about the positioning for where they want to go. And so he looks at this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, make some money with space tourism, show what he's capable of. Um, a space tourist mission for a few days, uh, for or a week or whatever to go around the moon is uh, way cooler than to go to the International Space Station and hang out. And you don't need to get the permission of the people involved with the International Space Station to have yeah. them be trained by the Russians and given things to do at the ISS. For this, you really just need you give them you, you give them some training and you do some medical checks on them. But basically, you're just putting them in a can and saying, "Have a good week in space, everybody," and that's it. <laughs> And and that's uh, yeah. so that's interesting too. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And as we said in 2017 in all of our shows, we don't really know what the new approach to NASA is going to be under the new administration. And you know, bottom line here is that the appointees there are so few appointees that have been uh, even nominated by the new administration that uh, it may be a while. There's like a real question about like what's going on and what do they want to do and how, how do they want to do this? So unless Trump like just comes in and appoints uh, or nominates uh, Elon Musk to be the head of NASA or something, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. It's, it's uh, there's a lot of, st- this seems to be a, a pivotal moment though. Like you said, like this is a new phase uh, the commercial crew stuff is going to happen pretty soon. Uh, capabilities of companies like SpaceX and and, and uh, the SLS are going to give us abilities to go beyond our low Earth orbit space shuttle ISS kind of thing. So now, okay, now what? Now that that's all been built up, we've got a lot of ideas, but what do we actually do next? Do we go land on the moon again? Do we go circle the moon? Do we go to Mars but not land on it? Do we land on Mars? What do we do? What's our What's our goal with all this tech that we're ramping up with? Exciting new world. Yeah, well, more to come in future episodes of Liftoff. I love that they're giving us so much material to talk about. It's very (laughs) nice of them. It's true. Uh, So we're going to move on to our main topic. Uh, But first, Jason, you want to tell us about our sponsor? Before we get to the Ice Giants, I should tell you about Blue Apron, which makes a couple meals basically for me every week and has for uh, more than a year now. It's the number one recipe delivery service, and it's got the freshest ingredients. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron will deliver seasonal recipes along with fresh, high-quality ingredients. They help you make delicious home-cooked meals. That's right. You will stand in your kitchen and make a meal yourself in 40 minutes or less with Blue Apron. A box comes to your house. It's full of ingredients. The ingredients are pre-portioned, so you're not going to end up with way too much. And the portions are nice. They're they're good size, but they're also not over-portioned where you're going to have food left over, uh, which I really like. It's a, it's a, one of my favorite things about it is that it makes exactly what it's supposed to make. And uh, the, the meat comes from uh, great locations. Uh, the seafood is sourced sustainably. The beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. And on the produce side, the farms that practice regenerative farming are the source for the produce at Blue Apron. And every meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card. We follow them, make the meals ourselves in 40 minutes or less, and then we save the cards of the meals that we like the most and make those again later ourselves because... 
it is completely replicable, which I really like about it. Um, no recipes are repeated within a year. You're going to get different stuff. It's really added a lot of variety to our meal planning in a way that uh, that I've really appreciated, and I've discovered lots of uh, preparations and tastes and meals that I have loved that I would never have even tried before Blue Apron. But if you're scared, you also can look at what's coming and pick the ingredients that you want. Basically, you get a choice of several meals and you can pick from those the meals that you want to receive from Blue Apron. And if there's a week that you don't like at all, you just skip it. There's no penalty. You don't pay for that week. And you move on to the next week and hopefully get some great stuff like chipotle vegetable and farro salad with avocado and crispy tortilla strips or udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs. Just two of the options you can get from Blue Apron in I think that's this month. Uh, 99% of the continental U.S. is covered by Blue Apron, so you will probably be in their delivery area. And their freshness guarantee means every ingredient will arrive ready to cook, or they'll make it right. If there's a problem, they will refund your money. And, uh, you know, they're they're really good about that. But I haven't had a problem in ages. I had one problem one time, and they took care of it immediately. And it's been all pretty pretty solid since then. You'll get three meals free with your first, first purchase, including free shipping. What you need to do is go to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You'll love how it feels to make these meals in your kitchen with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thank you, Blue Apron, for supplying me with food every week and for your support of Liftoff. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Woo! Woo! That's right. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scrape off my plate and put it in the compost bin and uh, move on to the outer solar system, I guess. <laughs> good, good transition there. All right. Ice giants. What are ice giants? Okay, you may in school, depending on your age, have learned that the outer solar system is populated by gas giants, right? Gas giants. Saturn. You got your Jupiter. They're out there. And then there's Uranus and Neptune, who are the far off planets before Pluto. If you are, again, not a a real whippersnapper, you learned that Pluto is the ninth planet, which it totally isn't anymore. But don't email me. I don't want to hear it. Uh, (laughs) But Uranus and Neptune were basically considered uh, in the gas giant category, even though they're a lot smaller than Saturn and Jupiter. Um, But they're actually different and different enough in their composition that over the course of the last couple of decades, they have been recategorized as what are called ice giants. And that's because of they're just made of different stuff and they have a different story behind them. So Uranus and Neptune are also interesting because these are not classical planets. These were these were discovered in the age of the telescope. Neptune was not discovered until 1848. And when it was discovered, it was discovered, it was predicted by math. They worked out based on the orbit of Uranus where this other planet should probably be. And then it was spotted in a telescope. And that was the confirmation. Although it turns out that Galileo saw it and noted it but didn't quite know what he was looking at. So it had been spotted before, but it was not verified as a planet. Neptune wasn't until 18, 1848. So these are new. These are newbies. There's a lot of stories that I'm not going to get into about the decisions on how to name them because a bunch of people wanted to name them after their discoverers. I don't know if you you read that story, Stephen, but it's pretty funny that, uh, in fact, the discoverer of Uranus, he wanted to name it after himself, or name it after the king, maybe. And uh, I think the French were poo-pooing that. And then a French guy discovered Neptune. And they're like, no, 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 
totally we should name these things after their creators <laughs> after all we, we stand behind the, the that other planet we should name all of these things for the the people who find them and it's like nope that uh, that didn't happen instead they're fairly consistently named by as a uh, as a uh, classical mythological you know roman and greek gods mm-hmm. so uh how do they differ from those gas giants uh well you know they are um there are a bunch of things like uh gas giants are mostly made of hydrogen and helium they are literally made of gas they are they're giant uh gas balls and the ice giants are not they are um they're full of sl- thick slush basically it's ices and they have they have rocky cores but they're um and that are roughly the size of the earth it's thought but most of their mass is this heavy stuff this these icy slush interiors and the hydrogen envelope because they do have hydrogen at the at the top level and so when you look at them you see a gas ball but that that envelope is way shallower than saturn and jupiter um so instead of instead of it being largely gas 90% gas it's it's a gas layer over a big cold icy you know ice and rock slushy core um and they're also they look really different than jupiter and saturn um they've got this kind of blue green color that has to do with the fact that there is a methane haze layer kind of like on titan there's a there's a haze layer and uh, the way it works is it filters out light wavelengths that aren't blue and green but the gr- blue and green pass through the methane layer bounce off the atmospheric layers below it and that yet bounces back to us and the result is that they're these pretty like blue green planets that they look like but they don't have a lot of uh features uh to speak of compared to the the detailed features of the the atmospheres of saturn and jupiter it's always striking looking at images of them just how featureless they are I mean, just they're just discs really yeah yeah the um i think uh you know neptune's got a little more going on because it's a little bit warmer but and i'll get into the individual planets in a little bit but but uranus is just a green ball <laughs> like there's not a lot going on now it's it's possible um these were only visited these two planets have only been visited by voyager 2 that's it like the only flybys that have been done are in the grand tour that voyager 2 did where it went to jupiter saturn uranus and neptune and so it's possible that we caught uranus in its sleeping phase <laughs> right? That, right that there are other times when the atmosphere is more accurate but when Voy- or more active but when voyager 2 flew by it there was nothing going on it was just laying there being still and green um oh so another difference i should mention between this and the gas giants is we have a much better idea of how gas giants form and we have a much better idea about how rocky planets form like rocky planets are inside the frost line so there's no there's no gas and volatiles down there they've all been kind of melted away no ice inside there but there is uh but there are these rocky cores and they can and they can sweep up some stuff including gas but they're they're not uh the, the the ice is all melted um, and then in the outer solar system, past the ice line, you get ice balls, but you also get big 
uh, collections of of uh, you know heavy cores that sweep up more gas and more gas and more gas, and that's where you get the gas giants forming in our solar system. That that is the thought is that there's some talk about planet migration, but we kind of understand like how do you make a gas giant and how do you make uh, a rocky planet? Then there are the ice giants, and we don't really know. I, I did a, a bunch of reading about this, and it's like people, some people believe that these are fairly straightforward, which is that they just couldn't. Um, they couldn't accumulate enough. They weren't in an area that had enough gas. They couldn't accumulate enough gas. Um, so the, oh, while they did accumulate kind of I, an icy, rocky shell, the gas that they could accumulate was really limited. So some people believe that. Other people believe it doesn't really make sense about where they're located and that they there has to be more to the story of where they came from. Um, you know, a lot of trying to understand how the solar system evolved from its early days, you, you have to use little clues to try to backtrack and figure out, like, what might it have been. And then computer models, like, if we set the initial configuration to be this, what happens over the course of a few billion years? So there's some thought that they could be gas giants that were then blasted by extreme ultraviolet light, kind of like what we said in our last episode about why there might not be atmospheres around exoplanets that are close to their stars. It's a little bit like that. The problem is that our sun wouldn't have been able to provide the extreme UV that would have had to blast off the gas from Uranus and Neptune. So it would have required like in the very earliest days of the sun that there was a nearby star that was really massive and putting off UV that might have, you know, melted them a little bit. So that's one theory. There's a theory that that they may have formed between Jupiter and Saturn and migrated outward later. But it's a lot, it's like, it's messy and it's not as clear a story uh, about why these things are where they are in our solar system. They've got some weird attributes too, like... Their magnetic fields are off axis, like way off axis, uh, 60 and, uh, and, and almost 50 degrees, respectively. And, you know, Earth's magnetic field is off axis by a couple of degrees. It's not a big deal. But these are way off axis. So there's a question of, like, how do their magnetic fields form? How is it different? Is there, like, an ice dynamo that is creating this magnetic field that's different from the metallic liquid dynamos that are inside other bodies that have magnetic fields? Um, so they're, they're weird and different and we have not known that they were different for sure until recently. So there's a lot more thought to be done there. Uh, but it does seem that this is a common kind of object because when we do exoplanet surveys, what we seem to find is that these sizes, at least we can't confirm that they're ice giants, but planets of the size of Uranus and Neptune are not uncommon. So they're, they're you know, there must be a reason why they exist. Yeah, it's, it's just so interesting to me how different they are once you start looking at them you know it's easy to sort of group them together with jupiter and saturn but they're they're very different beasts yeah and from far away it's it's harder to tell but it's just you know the closer observations like the voyager 2 fly by and our, our some of our understandings about their composition now uh we could probably stand to do a lot more exploration of the ice giants in the future we talk about future missions trying to understand they're far away and it's hard to it's hard to get there but at the same time we don't know a lot about these uh, these objects, and at least one of them has kind of interesting atmosphere and an interesting moon. So you know maybe there's an opportunity to go and learn a lot more about them because they are they are more interesting than we thought when Voyager Two was launched. Yeah, and it's still the only the only mission to visit them. Just... That's it. If we got if we got Uranus on a bad hair day, we will never know until we go back. 
so let's get into uh, into the planets uh, a little bit. But before we do that, let me tell you about uh, Casper. Everyone deserves a great night's sleep. You can get $50 off with the code LIFTOFF. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They've created one perfect mattress that it sells directly to consumers, eliminating the commission-driven inflated prices you see elsewhere. Casper's award-winning mattress was developed in-house and has a sleek design and is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. Like I said, that mattress was engineered in-house. It took it took engineers thousands of hours to develop this mattress. It's obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It's no surprise they've received over 20,000 reviews online with an average of 4.8 stars. Casper's mattress is made of supportive memory foam that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design helps you regulate your temperature throughout the night. Now, Casper makes quality mattresses at great prices, and they are designed, developed, and assembled here in America. They've cut the hassle and cost of dealing with showrooms and are passing those savings directly to the consumer. And it's super convenient. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns in the U.S. and Canada with a 100-night home trial. This is totally different than just laying down on a mattress in a store for you know four minutes and making a decision. You have 100 nights to spend on it before you have to make up your mind. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. And like I said, they really understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit to it, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on this thing. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash liftoff and using the offer code liftoff at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for the support of this show. All right. So let's start with uh, let's start with Uranus. Got some fun facts ready for you. Are you ready for some fun Uranus facts? Uh-huh. That's how I open all my all my bits at parties. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start. Explains w- a lot. <laughs> I don't get out much. Uh, it's just to see Neil deGrasse Tyson with other nerds. Uh, Uranus has the most uh, elliptical orbit of any planet. It takes eighty four years uh, for it to travel around uh, around our sun. And we're going to get back um, uh, to the orbit in a little bit because the they basically they use that orbit to predict where Neptune was going to be, which is awesome. Um, kind of like Planet Nine stuff now. Uh, it is 14.5 uh, Earth masses, but it's the second least dense planet after Saturn. And uh, it's basically uh, four Earth radii across. So um, Right. So when we think about giants, it's not that, they're not that no. giant, right? Like in terms of size, it's, you know, it's four times the Earth's radius, which means that it's much larger because the, the, it's volume, right? So it's increasing exponentially. But it's not like Saturn and Jupiter, which are stagger, staggeringly huge. It's just, you know, it's four Earth radii in in uh, its radius. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit um, about uh, the tilt earlier. We've mentioned it on previous shows. Uh, crazy axial tilt, 98 degrees. Um yeah. So it's basically on its side, uh, actually a little bit past its side. The North Pole is uh, eight degrees below the plane of orbit. Uh, so it, it got someone came over and knocked Uranus over at some point. Which is real. Yeah, it's like a it's like doing a barrel roll yeah. through the solar system, basically. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
I like that. Um, so this means that each pole gets around 42 years of continuous sunlight and then 42 years of darkness. Yeah. Uh, strange, Ouch. strange stuff. And it is hotter at its equator than its poles. Uh, you would think, I would think just reading this, that whatever pole is facing the sun would be the warmest spot. Um, and it's unknown why that's not true, but it is warmer at its equator. And it, you know, it's not really known why Uranus is on its side. It's it's thought that maybe uh, it was struck by something. It'd have to be something big, like a, maybe even like an Earth-sized protoplanet uh, collided with it and, and, and knocked it over. And it's just been that way ever since. Um, this would have been way back in the formation of the solar system. We talked about this with Venus as well, uh, which spins the wrong way around. Uh, something struck it and and altered it forever. Yeah, it got it got knocked in at some point and it knocked on its side, right? Because it doesn't make any sense otherwise why it wouldn't. Because there's a general movement in the solar system. There's a general sense of direction that was imparted from the formation, and this and Uranus does not share it. No. <laughs> like, nope. No, it's a rebel. It's mm-hmm. a rebel. Um, and like you said before, it's quiet. It's a pretty calm place. When Voyager 2 flew by in 1986, it observed a total of 10, 10, one zero, 10 cloud features across the entire planet. Yeah. So uh, nothing like what we see uh, at Jupiter with stripes and bands, not even like what we see at Neptune, its, it's next door neighbor. Uh, it is, if you look at pictures of this, it is basically featureless. It's a green ball. Mm-hmm. And then one of the reasons for the lack of features is is that it doesn't really have any internal heat. Um, even though it's about the same size as Neptune, Neptune radiates more than two and a half times as much energy into space as it receives from the sun. And Uranus doesn't do that. It, it, it is a much cooler place. And heat generates atmospheric activity. So that is probably one of the reasons. Again, maybe a bad hair day, maybe at a different season, the dynamics of the atmosphere would be different, but it's cold and it's quiet because it doesn't have an internal heat source to speak of. Uh, it has uh, lots of moons. Their name. Let's draft them. <laughs> Can we draft them? There's no, tw- we shouldn't draft them. There's 27 known ones. That's probably too many. And they're not that interesting. Honestly, the most interesting thing about the moons is that unlike most um, celestial bodies that are named for. Um, for uh, mythological characters. Somebody was on like an English literature bender when they found Uranus. And so its moons are named after characters from Shakespeare mostly, and also um, Pope. So, you know, this is where you get Miranda and, and uh, from the Tempest and and it's things like that. Miranda, Ariel, Umbriel, Titania, Oberon, these, these uh, names that are not like other solar system names because they come from Pope and Shakespeare, but they're not, they're not, they're not big. They're not, you know, super interesting as moons. There are a lot of them, thanks to Vo- the Voyager flyby. We know a lot more about them. I mean, they're basically just chunks of rock and ice. Like, there's there's not yeah, much here that's super bits interesting. Bits of rock and yeah, ice. Um, Uranus has 13 rings that have been seen. Because Uranus is on its side, uh, its, its rings still follow its equator. So looking at it from the side, they go top to bottom. Again, very strange little place. Uh, it is, they are composed of extremely dark particles. Uh, in fact, I think the majority of them weren't even uh, seen until Voyager uh, got close. And the components of the rings are all very small. Uh, we're talking like fractions of a meter. Um, and they probably didn't form with Uranus. It's thought that maybe they're debris from a later collision, maybe from a moon that collided with something or 
they they appear to be younger and obviously vastly different substance than Uranus itself. Um, but again, you see a picture of it, and uh, they're running top to bottom. It's it's all it's all crazy out there. So tell me about Neptune. Okay, Neptune. Neptune is our most distant planet for now. There may be a Planet Nine out there, but if it is, it's so far out there that it is a, a, a different sort of beast altogether. Um, Neptune is, as we mentioned, uh, a planet who was discovered because of its position being inferred based on the motions of other planets, especially Uranus. And uh, because it's far out, and that means it's dim, which means it's hard to find. So you need to, you know, you can't. It's not an easy catch. But uh, with the math, they were able to do it. It orbits the sun 165 years, Earth years it takes to go around. It is like uh, Uranus for Earth radii, but 17 Earth masses, which makes it the most dense of these giant objects. It's a much denser body than Uranus. Uh, and you can see it, like, it's it's packing another two and a half Earths in the same space, basically. it's It's got a lot more in it. Um, it uh it it is it has active weather in a way that the kind of boring green ball of Uranus does not. Um, it's got internal heat, like I mentioned, and that as a result leads to these dynamic storm systems. Uh, Stephen, are you excited about big winds on <laughs> I Neptune? I am. Uh, winds reaching speeds of six hundred meters a second, which is like thirteen hundred miles an hour. It's um it's a little breezy. A little breezy for my taste. You don't want to fly a kite on Neptune is what we're saying. Yeah, but there's action there. I mean, this is this is way out in the in the outer reaches of the solar system, defining in many ways defining the edge of regular planetary solar system space, right? Uh, we talk a lot on this show about trans-Neptunian objects, right? It, literally, it is things beyond Neptune. Neptune is responsible for a lot of uh, objects orbiting in the Kuiper Belt. Their orbits are resonant with Neptune because Neptune is this big, heavy object at the edge that keeps sweeping around. And as a result, a lot of the outer solar system moves in time with Neptune. Um, the uh, the most exciting thing on on the day that Voyager two blew past Neptune was this object called the Great Dark Spot, which was considered sort of an analog for the Great Red Spot, obviously on Jupiter. Um, it has since gone away, but another storm has has uh, has formed. So I think the idea there is that this is a much more dynamic atmosphere, and there's there's stuff happening here. It's very far away, so it's hard for us to see it. The images that we get are are uh, are not great, but the fact that we can image this at all from the Hubble or from uh, adaptive optics on Earth telescopes is pretty amazing. So it has features, but the great dark spot that you'll see in those beautiful photos from Voyager that faded away, and you know there's something maybe like it now, but it's harder to see from from all the way out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like these spots come and go on Neptune relatively quickly uh, compared to Jupiter, where the, the Great Red Spot, even though it is diminished from what, what it was, say, like in the 80s or 90s, uh, Neptune seems to cycle through these things much faster. And it, it may be that just, like you said, the, we only have one data point of, of seeing it up close. So it may have been that it was right in this transition and it's 500 years between the next one. We just don't know. But um, the dark spot that we saw is no longer there, but there are some similar uh, other smaller uh, storm spots uh, like that that we can see now. Hmm. Um, the uh, There are there are some rings, mm-hmm. although, again, they're faint. And, I mean, it turns out the debris rings 
are common in the outer solar system. You collect a lot of junk and some of it ends up in getting sculpted by gravity into rings. Um, but it also has a family of 14 moons, only one of which is really relevant, I would say, which is Triton, which is a very large moon. I think it is it is like 90 plus percent of the mass of the of the moons of Neptune. <laughs> it is by far the biggest. And the interesting thing about it is it's it's got a retrograde orbit, Stephen, right? So what does that mean? That means something happens yeah, because got hit. <laughs> things don't orbit backward. So in this case, the thought is that it's a, it was a capture of something that we would otherwise call a Kuiper Belt object. It's, it's in the family of dwarf planets that are way out there, like Pluto, for example, and that it's almost like a little Pluto. In fact, it's a little bigger than Pluto is. But because it's going around Neptune, we call it a moon. But in terms of observations and in terms of composition, it's probably uh, an opportunity. If we went back to Neptune, let's say, looking at Triton would be interesting because it's a captured dwarf planet, essentially, from the Kuiper belt. And so it would give us an opportunity to look more closely at an object that is probably a lot like Pluto. And if you look at the pictures of Triton that were taken by Voyager and you you can you can get the idea of like yeah I can see how Triton is probably kind of Pluto like mm-hmm. that that there are things about it that now that we've seen Pluto close up you look at Triton you're like yeah I can kind of see it so it's an interesting object that didn't form there clearly but uh, resides there now orbiting around Neptune yeah and and like we said uh with Uranus it's the first um planet that was mathematically calculated to exist because of its gravitational pull on Uranus. And now we know its profound impact on shaping the Kuiper belt. So the, the asteroid belt uh, between Mars and Jupiter is is where it is because Jupiter's gravity holds it there. And it's all that the Kuiper belt, to a lesser extent, is held in, held in place where it is because of Neptune. And it's just uh, another example in our solar system of how these bodies you know, play off each other and there's resonance built into the system where uh, things are where they are for a reason. And uh, well, like as, as a kid, I always was fascinated by the fact that Pluto's orbit um, goes closer to the sun at one point in its yeah. orbit than Neptune. Yeah. And, and you're always like, Oh, they're going to hit each other and all that. They actually will never hit each other because they're, they are resonant. Pluto is in a resonant orbit with Neptune. It's a, it's a, I think, a two, two to three resonance, right? So they just move in time with one another, and that is the power of the gravity of, of Neptune, that Neptune is, um, you know, Neptune is sculpting a lot of the, the movements of the bodies of the outer solar system with its gravity because it's this, a large object that is moving, and so the other objects are moving with it in the outer solar system. Um, also, this is like we mentioned earlier, the way the planet nine would be intuited from from math, and then they they've done some of that with their models, and then now they're trying to find places that they think it might be to spot it. It's a similar kind of story to what happened with Neptune. It also is what happened with Pluto, which is that there was a misunderstanding of the math and looking at the outer system solar system orbits and thinking, well, if we found Neptune, we can find another large body that's out beyond Neptune using the math. 
and they ended up sort of declaring victory when Pluto was spotted. But it turned out that Pluto's mass was 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 totally overestimated, and that the math about demanding that there be a ninth planet was wrong, and that there didn't need to be that. And that was sort of the story of why Pluto became the ninth planet, even though it really shouldn't have been, because there was a misunderstanding about it. So using math to find planets can go can cut both ways, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, cool. It was fun learning more about ice giants. You know, it's ice giants. They've been so now at a party, Stephen. If somebody comes up to you and, and says the solar system has four gas giants, you can go, "No, sir, it does not. It has two, and the other two are ice giants, mm. which are totally different." At which point, you will still be talking, but you will have been ushered out of the <laughs> yeah. party. Everyone went home. Uh, you know, it's they've been on our list for a while as we kind of work our way through the solar system and. Uh, we decided to put them together because they are so similar and because, like you said, ice giants just aren't necessarily all that exciting. Um, but, uh, you know, if we if we go back and we do some outer solar system exploration again, there may be some, some more to come out of it. It's, it's all based on one pass. Could be. A- any Anytime we talk about the extreme outer solar system, we will be talking about Neptune, right? Like, Neptune will be involved because it is involved. It is the king of... Of the little bits of rock and ice that are out in the outer solar system. Yep. If you uh, want to learn more about ice giants or the other stories we talked about this week, you can find the links on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 41. Uh, you can get in touch with us there. There's an email link. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoffpodcast. Jason is at jsnell, two L's. And you can find me there as ismh. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Stay cool, Ice Giants. Adios.